I'm very uh, privileged to be asked to be on this particular program. And I want to commend Mike and others who planned the theme for this series, the main lesson in, and then we're going to study different books of the Bible and talk about the main lesson in each one of those books. When he told me that I could have my choice of the books that I wanted to talk about, I told him I would like to speak about 1 Thessalonians. And he said, good, we'll put you first. And I thought, well, that's, uh, that's interesting because it is believed that 1 Thessalonians, many people believe that 1 Thessalonians is the oldest book in the New Testament, the very first book written that is in the New Testament. We don't usually think of it that way, do we? Uh, if I just casually walked up to the average person and were to say, what was the first book uh, that was written in the New Testament? Chances are the majority would say Matthew. But Matthew was written probably maybe 30, as long as 30 years, uh, uh, maybe not 30 years, but many years after 1 Thessalonians. If you're taking notes, 1 Thessalonians was written in about 50 A.D. According to the scholars who have studied the context and who have studied the history, that is a common uh, conclusion. 1 Thessalonians was written in about 50 A.D. It was written shortly after Paul established that church, in Acts chapter 17. I hope you'll do some study of this book after the lesson. In fact, this would be a good study for the next week or two in your private study. But I hope that you will read Acts 17 about the first 15, uh, the, about the first 15 verses or so because that is where you read about the beginning of the church in Thessalonica. Paul went to Thessalonica right after he was imprisoned in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. Now you remember the story of the Philippian jailer and you remember Paul's and Silas's imprisonment and you remember the earthquake uh, when those prisoners were freed. And you'll remember that the jailer was ready to kill himself. And Paul yelled out, don't do it because we're all here. And then Paul preached to the, the jailer. And the jailer and his entire family were baptized around midnight of that particular day, uh, evening. And what a great thing that was. Well, Things went badly for Paul when he was in Philippi. Uh, he suffered a beating. He was uh, severely uh, uh, accused. He was severely uh, abused physically, uh, verbally, and just about every other way you can imagine. Uh, he was a person who, in my opinion although the Bible doesn't say this, but in my opinion, when Paul got to Thessalonica, 
his back was still oozing blood because of the beating he had received in Philippi. It was a terrible, terrible time in the life of Paul as far as the way he was treated. I know that Mike is is a result of the mission field. I know that Mike has worked as missionary and he's working as a missionary even now in the work he's doing, uh, particularly uh, with the, uh, the video ministry. But people who have worked with souls know how terribly discouraging it can be when you find that someone you have worked with for weeks and months and maybe years has fallen away from the gospel. One of the phenomena of mission work is that many times those people who look like they are the very best prospects are the first ones to abandon the faith after baptism. And it's heartbreaking. And so a missionary, when he hears about the church where he used to work, one of the first questions he's going to ask, he's going to ask about the spiritual welfare of some of the people who were led to Christ during his time in that location. The Apostle Paul is very very concerned about this church in Thessalonica. What happened is that Paul was driven out of Thessalonica. He was only able to be there three Sabbaths. Now, depending on how you count the calendar, if you're somewhere for just three Saturdays, you're not there very long. I believe I counted up one time that if you're there three Sabbaths, about the most, the biggest number of days you can get out of that period of time is going to be somewhere maybe in the mid-twenties. That's not very long to work in a place. I was a missionary in Brazil for 16 years. And even when we left after 16 years, I was concerned that I might be leaving too soon. But to leave the mission field after three Sabbath days, to leave an infant church, we're talking about church made up of baby Christians. You've taught them to the best of your ability during that period of three Sabbaths, And all that time in between those Sabbaths. But no matter how good a teacher you are, no matter how effective you may be, it is hard to teach everything people need to know in such a short time. I remember when our daughter was ready to go to college, we were living in Brazil. And 
We were not ready to return to the States, but it was time for her to enroll in college. And she came back to Oklahoma Christian and studied the first year while our family remained in Brazil. Jane accompanied her on the trip back, helped her get enrolled, and then flew back to Brazil. And I remember that in the weeks and months leading up to the time she would leave us, we really evaluated the teaching we had done with her in the previous 18 years. And we thought of all kinds of things that an 18-year-old girl needed to know if she was leaving home and she was going to be 5,000 miles from home. And so just every day we were giving her more and more exhortation and invitation and warnings and, and encouraging her. And this went on and on. And finally she said, Mother, Daddy, you have tried to teach me more in the last few weeks than in the whole 18 years I've been here at the house and I believe what you're saying <laughs> and I'm going to do what you're saying don't worry about me but that's the way you feel on the mission field when you've just had someone as a Christian for a period of three Sabbath days and you're going to leave you worry about them now, Paul was driven out of Thessalonica by persecution. He went to Berea, and his enemies from Thessalonica came south to Berea and ran him out of Berea. And he went to Athens, and he was in Athens. And that is actually probably the very place from which 1 Thessalonians is written. Now, if you were Paul, and you had all of these infants, we don't know how many. There might have just been 10 or 15. There might have just been 5. There might have been 75. We don't know how many people. I doubt seriously that it was a very big church. But it was the church of Jesus Christ in Thessalonica. And he was in Athens. And he knew these babies were up there. His babies. The people he had taught. The people he had influenced. And he wanted to know, how are they doing? How are they doing? And he wrote 1 Thessalonians. Now if you were to ask me what is the main thought in 1 Thessalonians. I believe I would say that the main thought is this. He writes to those baby Christians. And he says keep on keeping on. Until Jesus comes. I'm going to repeat that. Keep on keeping on until Jesus comes. And I think that if you look at 1 Thessalonians carefully, you can see that 
message penetrating virtually everything that Paul says in this little book that I believe only has about 88 verses. It's a wonderful book. It's really a letter. It's a missionary letter. The truth is, everything that Paul wrote virtually, (laughs) maybe every single thing he wrote, is a missionary letter. He is a missionary. He's a missionary to the Gentiles. Now, he preaches to Jews also. And he preaches to barbarians. But Paul is a missionary, and when he sits down and he writes Romans, he writes 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he writes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus and Philemon, every one of those is a missionary letter. Every one of them. But this one is special. It is to a church that has just come into existence. Maybe just a few weeks earlier. Maybe a few months earlier. We don't know exactly how long ago, but it wasn't very long ago that this church was established. And his message to the church is keep on keeping on until Jesus comes. Now that phrase, until Jesus comes, is very interesting. And it is a major thought also of 1 Thessalonians because every chapter in 1 Thessalonians mentions the second coming of Christ. Every chapter he mentions the second coming of Christ. I wonder how often we mention the second coming of Christ in our Bible classes. I wonder how many times we mention the second coming of Christ in our sermons. Paul mentions it in every one of the five chapters of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, chapters 1 through 5. And so as we look at this book, this letter that says keep on keeping on, it is always with the backdrop that Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. So keep on keeping on. Encouragement is an interesting thing. It really doesn't cost much to become an encourager. I mean in terms of money. Sometimes I may see a church and think to myself, this church is spending thousands and thousands of dollars, or at least they have plans to spend I don't mean this church, I mean a church, has plans to do something great and they, they'd like to spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. 
And believe me, there, there's plenty that needs to be done today for Jesus Christ that costs thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. But there's so much we can do and not spend a penny. Not spend a penny. We can encourage people. Older people can encourage young people. Younger people can encourage children younger than they are. And it doesn't cost anything. But how do you go about it? And particularly tonight, we're concerned about how did Paul go about encouraging these infants in Thessalonica? How did he do that? How do you encourage a church? How do you encourage an individual? Well, I believe in this book, you can see Paul encouraging this church in the first place by reminding this church of its glorious past. A glorious past. I was talking to Mike uh, at supper. The the four of us were talking about uh, this church, which... I understand began in 1939. That was a long time ago, wasn't it? Well, I shouldn't say that. That's four years younger than I am. (laughs) But it was a long time ago. This church started in 1939. And in all those years, never had a major division. That's a glorious past. That's a sign of love, a sign of unity, a sign of people taking care of each other, a sign of people encouraging each other. That's a glorious past for this church. Now, this little church in Thessalonica didn't have that much of a past. Maybe just a few weeks ago it was established, or maybe just a few months ago it was established. It's a baby church. It's an infant church. But in that short period of time, it's, it's had a glorious past. He mentions the, this glorious past in the first two chapters, and we're just going to briefly note this. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 2. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He talks about the glorious past that includes their work of faith, their labor of love, and the steadfastness of their hope. You don't have to be a member of the church for 40 years before you develop those qualities. These people he is writing to haven't been a member of the Lord's kingdom much at all. Just a little while. But they've already left their mark. 
And notice this. In that same verse, chapter 1, verse 5, he mentions that in their glorious past, they have had good men who worked with them. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. I don't know all the preachers that you've had here at Choctaw. I certainly don't know all the elders who have served here, but I'll tell you one thing. If a church started in 1939 and in 2019 can look back and say we've never had a major division in this church, that is a sign of some good leadership. Some good people have been out front and they've been leading and shepherding this flock. And as Paul tells about their glorious past, he talks about some of the, 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 the men who worked with them. He's one of them. Silas is one of them. Timothy is one of them. Now in chapter 2, in chapter 2, he spends the whole chapter basically talking about, or at least a, a good part of the chapter, he spends talking about the men who worked with them. And I wish I had time to go to verse by verse in chapter 2, but I don't. But let me tell you what he talks about the qualities that he mentions in these men who went there as missionaries. He talks about their courage. He talks about their character. He talks about their compassion. He talks about the message that they taught. And one of the most interesting things, I think, is in the very last verse, verse 19. As he is writing to these people that he loves so much and has known for such a short time. And he says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? What are we going to boast about, he says, when the Lord comes? What is going to be... Our joy, our hope, or our crown when Jesus comes. What, what's it going to be? And then he answers his own question. He says, is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. You. You people. You people who accepted the gospel. You babes in Christ. You babes who stood by me when I was run out of town. That's what our joy and our crown and our hope is. The joy and the crown will not be, did you teach in the Bible department at Oklahoma Christian or Harding? Or were you the preacher at Memorial Road or Choctaw? Or did you edit the Christian Chronicle? Were you a missionary to Canada or Brazil? That's not going to be what counts. What we're going to rejoice in, Paul says, 
is the people we led to Jesus Christ. That's our joy. That's our crown. That's our hope when Jesus comes. So number one, Paul wants to encourage these people. He reminds them in chapter 1 that they were converted from idols to worship the living God. I mean, these were people who were bowing down to stones and wood and metal shaped in the form of a man or a woman. That's, that's what they were worshiping. And everybody around them was worshiping that way virtually. And they left all that. And they paid a heavy price when they did. The people that had always supported them are now their enemies. And they're attacking them. They're attacking the people who have come to preach Jesus. And Paul says, when Jesus comes, what we're going to be proud of, what we're going to count as our crown, our joy, our hope, is you. When Jesus comes. So the glorious past. The glorious past. Is Paul's way of saying. Keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on. Now in chapter 3. Paul talks about their present situation. If we had time to study every verse. We would find that Timothy has been with Paul in Athens. And Paul decided that he had to find out the condition right now of the church in Thessalonica. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Therefore, when we could, be, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Oh, man, how wonderful. I love to hear about a church that has a glorious past. But I love to hear about churches I know about that are having a glorious present. And what thrills the soul of Paul as if this little band of Christians that he's been so worried about, he now knows they're hanging in there. 
They're keeping on, keeping on. Timothy brings a marvelous report. They're doing well. They're doing what you taught them to do. They're being faithful to God. Paul is writing this letter to say to them, keep on keeping on till Jesus comes. And then in chapters 4 through 5, Paul changes from talking so much about the past, even talking just about the present, and he talks about the way they need to handle things in the future. How do you encourage somebody who's already doing a great job? You know, people doing a great job need to be encouraged. The ministers need encouragement. Elders need encouragement. Deacons need encouragement. Our members need encouragement. And there are a lot of people in the congregations where I go who receive very, very little encouragement from anybody. They don't get it at home. They don't get it on the job. They don't get it from their neighbors. Sometimes they don't get it at church. Well, I want to show you in this verse very clearly what Paul says about what the Thessalonian church that has a glorious past and a glorious present needs to do in the future. Here it is in chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing. All right, notice he's talking now. He's, he's summarizing what he's heard. I'm going to read that again. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality. What Paul is, going, is saying here is this. You are doing a great job. What you are living, what you are exemplifying is magnificent. And I urge you to keep doing it. Just do it more and more. That's the way you encourage somebody. That's the way you encourage a church that's already doing a good job. Brag on them for what they're doing, but tell them to do what they're doing more and more. That's the message. And that's what Paul urges for this church for their future. And the first thing he says is, remember do not practice immorality. 
That's his first exhortation. This is not the first time he's told them this. He's reminding them. This is a city that practices immorality as a part of their worship. This is a part of a civilization that committed fornication in order to worship their gods. And so he starts out by saying, you don't do that. You remember what you've been taught. Now don't do it. You keep yourself pure, just like you're doing, but do it more and more. And then as we go down to verse 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Do it more and more. Love your brothers just like you're doing. But do it more and more. And so I believe that when you look at the book of 1 Thessalonians, a missionary letter, that the major thought that permeates this book is keep on keeping on. Do what you're doing. Just do it more and more. And do it until Jesus returns. May God bless us to learn from this letter what God wants each of us to do and what he wants this church to do and what he wants our brotherhood to do. And may God bless you.